Well, amen to that, right? <laughs> the Lord has really gifted us with many talented musicians, and we appreciate Ashley and her oversight of our praise teams and the way they use their gifts and talents to serve the Lord and point us to Him and His glory. So we're thankful for you, Ashley. We're thankful for all of you on the praise teams here at Gateway and leading us so faithfully before the throne of grace Sunday by Sunday to proclaim the excellencies and greatness of our Lord. If you recognize that song, I was blind, but now I see. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. So turn to John chapter 9 this morning. As we continue our journey through the gospel of John, after doing about five weeks in John 8, we're going to attempt to do all of John 9 in one morning this morning. And don't worry, we'll get you out by lunchtime still. All 41 verses this morning in John chapter 9. Now, as you're turning to John chapter 9, I want to ask you a question. And that question is, for just take just a moment and think, who is the most confident person that you know? Okay? Get that in your mind. Who is the most confident person that you know. Now, if we had time to go around and let everyone share, I think we probably have two groups of people that would emerge in this. Some names we mentioned as someone who's confident would be people who would be self-confident. Perhaps a better term for it would be people who are proud, and we can all think of them, whether they're you know, people we know personally, whether they're politicians, whether they're entertainers, people who are very self-confident in themselves. They think they're the smartest. They think their ways are always right. They're not teachable. They just, they're, they're very much bold in what they think because they've got it all figured out. But some of us, if we shared who we thought was most confident, we might think of someone who has a humble confidence. They're confident, but they're not confident in themselves. They're confident in the gospel. They're confident in what God has done for them. They're confident because they've experienced John 20, 31, that they've experienced eternal life because they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and they have life in his name. And we can think of people like that who are confident in God. And so as we think about that this morning, as we come to John chapter 9, we're going to see two contrary types of confidences, two different types of confidences in this text this morning. We'll see a confidence of a group that is very self-confident. They're very proud. It's a sinful type of confidence. But we'll also see a, a person in particular who has a very humble confidence. He's confident, but not in himself. He's confident in God and what God has done in him and will do through him in this. And so as we come to John 9 this morning, I want to go ahead, before we read the text, give you our main idea for the morning. And our main idea is actually a question today. It's this question, are we confident in Jesus or in ourselves? Are we confident in Jesus or in ourselves? Again, we'll see this morning a group with a prideful confidence that's confident in themselves. And we'll see a solitary man who's confident in Jesus that leads him to saving faith, that leads him to be strong in adversity, that leads him to be bold for Jesus. And so as we come to John chapter 9 this morning, we're going to read the entirety of the, of the chapter. So I'm going to ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. John chapter 9, get a little stretch break here to stand because we're going to read all 41 verses, okay? I'm reading out the English Standard Version this morning. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, 
the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he is to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. Verse 24. So for the second time they called this man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I'm thankful for the gospel of John and how it shows us what true belief in you looks like. As we come to this passage this morning, God, I pray that you would open our eyes God, that every one of us would have eyes to see, that you would give us sight, spiritual sight, into the, the riches of your word this morning, that it might transform us and change us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. So again, the question for us as we think about John 9 is, are we confident in Jesus or are we confident in ourselves? So let's look at what's going on here in this particular passage. Now, this is a new account. Some time has passed since chapter 8, and we don't know how long has passed since what we saw in recent weeks in chapter 8 has transpired. But let's look at what's happening here in John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, that's Jesus, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, friends, it was widely believed at this time that if someone was suffering, it was a direct correlation to a particular sin in their life. 
there was blindness was because of a sin. If there was some type of infirmity, it was because of a sin. And so it's this idea of this direct correlation. You see it in the book of Job. Job's friends, when Job is suffering, don't assume that God is in control. They assume that Job must have suffered or must have sinned to have this suffering. And the same assumption is still at work here. And if we're quite honest, that same assumption is still pretty true in our culture today in a lot of ways. But Jesus rejects that mindset. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, that word but there is significant. When we look at English, it's a short three-letter word and we pass over it. But the Greek word there literally means on the contrary. Jesus is showing as strong of a contrast as possible. He's totally renouncing this idea that this man's suffering is because of a particular sin. But rather, this man is suffering because it's part of God's sovereign plan. God had a divine purpose in it. Now, friends, that's a whole sermon for a whole other day. We can't do justice to this text and go down that rabbit trail this morning. But if you're in the middle of a place where you're wrestling, where is God in the midst of suffering? There's a book available in the hallway out there called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. About 300 pages, it'll expound this idea of God's plans even in the midst of suffering, and I highly commend that to you. Now, what is the point of the suffering here, this man? Well, we don't always know what the point is, but it's revealed for us right here. Jesus tells us why this man was born blind. Again, it was not because of sin, but it was for a different reason. Look back in verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What is the point of this man's blindness? It's for the power of God to be seen. It's for the power of God to be seen in this man's life himself. When he sees spiritual sight, when he is physically healed and spiritually healed as well. But it's also so God's glory is on display for all to see. What is at stake here is the glory of God. What we just sang about earlier in the service. Not to us but to your name be the glory. That's what's going on here. This, God's works here is to glorify God. So let's see how Jesus brings great glory out of this situation. Look at verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he, Jesus, spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now why did Jesus heal this way? Why did Jesus spit in the dirt pick it up, knead it together, and stick it on the guy's face and send him away. I mean, think about that. Jesus is God. He can do whatever God wants to do. In Matthew 9, there was a blind man, and Jesus just touched the guy's eyes. That's a little bit less dirty, right? You look in, in Mark chapter 8, there was another blind man. He spit on the guy's eyes, and he saw. And this is the most dirty of all, that he spits in the dirt, makes mud, sticks it on the guy's eyes, and says, now go find this pool and go wash. Why would he do that? Well, he's God. He can do what he wants, Right? But beyond that, I think one of the reasons Jesus does it different ways is so we don't get hung up on the method of how he heals. Because if every time there was a blind man who was healed, Jesus did the same way, what would we do? We'd be quick to run and try to replicate those same methods today. But Jesus does it a different way each time because he's showing it doesn't matter the method. I'm God. I can do what I want. But he's showing it's my power that you need to be focused on. And so instead of getting hung up on why he did the dirt and the mud here, what's more important is when he chose to do this miracle. What day he picked out for this. Look down in verse 14. In verse 14 it says that, let's turn back. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. What Jesus did in this action was a breaking of the Sabbath law. Now let's be clear, it wasn't a breaking of biblical law. It was a breaking of extra biblical traditions that the leadership had put upon the people. In fact, he broke it in three ways here. 
When he took dirt and spit and mixed it together, that's a kneading action. Any type of kneading action with your hand was forbidden on the Sabbath. So he breaks it doing that. He then places it on the man's eyes. That's an anointing. That was forbidden on the Sabbath. And then he heals the guy, which somehow was also forbidden on the Sabbath. So he intentionally does three things here to violate three of man's traditions, not biblical commands, but three of man's traditions to get the attention of all who are watching on this Sabbath day. It's not the first time Jesus did this. If you think back to John chapter 5, when there was a lame man by the pool, he goes and he heals him on the Sabbath day. God sovereignly chooses a Sabbath day to do this remarkable healing to bring to the light true belief versus unbelief, to show for us a contrast between confidence in Jesus and confidence in oneself. And what comes to the surface is what he intended, and those two contrary heart motivations get seen in the response of the people, a prideful self-confidence or a humble confidence in Jesus. So as you look at this historical account of what actually happened and how the people respond, again, let's not just look at it as some interesting piece of history, but look at it with us in view as well. Am I confident in Jesus or am I confident in myself? Well, let's start with the not-so-pleasant side of this story, and that's the prideful self-confidence of the Pharisees. Now, first of all, why were the Pharisees even involved in the first place? A man got healed. He went home to his neighborhood. Hey, the blind man sees. Why in the world did this become an issue with the, with the religious leadership? Look at verses 8 and 9. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. There's a debate going on. Some people are like, Is he really the blind guy? And others are like, No, there is absolutely no way he, that could be him. And he's like, um, Yeah, it's me. Hello. And... They're ignoring him. So there's a debate. They're not even sure what's going on here. And so when they couldn't decide if this was really a blind man who could see, they decided to go seek out a higher authority to help them with their debate here. And they somehow sensed there was probably a religious issue involved with, so they went to the religious authorities. They went to the Pharisees. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, that was just completely normal in that day and age. Religious issue here. We're not sure what to do with it. Let's go seek the spiritual authority. There was no way to Google it and see what might happen at the time. They went and sought the authorities above them to explain this thing that they could not explain on that. Now, before we continue, we're at a place now. The man is standing before the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. If we hadn't already read the account, what would you expect from the religious leaders? A guy who has never seen any day of his entire life is now seeing. Wouldn't you expect some type of excitement, some type of rejoicing over this? I mean, there should be. This man who his whole life could not work, he had to sit and beg, is now able to go work and serve in society and serve in the community. Furthermore, this guy who had never been able to go worship in the, in the temple, in the synagogue, is now able to go worship. You would expect to... You're finally able to come in our midst. Praise God. We're glad you're here. Come celebrate worship alongside us. But is that what happens? No, there is no excitement. There's no welcome to the synagogue. There's no praise God you're here. There's no, wow, this is amazing. We are so glad you're no longer blind. What do they do instead of that? Look at verse 14. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I'll wash and I see some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So, friends, what's going on here? 
they never welcome him. They never rejoice. What they do, they want to figure out why this happened on the Sabbath. They want, they're mad. They're angry that their traditions were broken. Again, notice the order of these verses. In verse 14, it's very clear this happened on the Sabbath. So verse 15, so therefore, the reason why the Pharisees are angry here and they're asking the question they ask is because of the Sabbath violation. Therefore, in verse 16, they conclude, and there's this division here, which is a side note, you never see division after verse 16. They get unified in their frustration and anger against Jesus after verse 16 here. And in fact, they're so angry, they're so proud, they're so blind, they try to figure out a way to discount the miracle even happened. They try to find a way to act like this wasn't even real. Look at verses 18 and 19. Again, look at the length they go because of their prideful self-confidence. Look at the length they do. There is a man who has been blind his whole life, who's standing before them seeing, and now they don't, won't even accept it as true. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Friends, literally the evidence of the miracle is literally looking at them. And they won't accept it, so they go, This can't be true. Let's, let's bring in the parents. Surely we can pressure them, in a sense, to deny this is their son, and then we can say, No, this really did not happen on this well the parents don't give them what they're looking for it's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day on that one but the parents don't give in they basically say this is our son and because they fear people because they're people pleasers they're not willing to stand up for their son there's no rejoicing there either which is another again another heartbreaking message for another day on that but when it gets to the place the parents affirm this is their son there's no doubting the evidence they can't do anything with that there's no way to get around the fact that this man was born blind and this man now sees So do they say, man, we were wrong, we blew it, sorry, yeah, we're glad you have your sight. No, they turn their approach and their prideful self-confidence to try something different. Look at verse 24. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. What does it mean give glory to God? They're putting him under an oath. They're saying, listen, we can't disprove this miracle happened, so now we're putting you under oath. Tell us Jesus is a sinner. They're now turning to the assaulting of Jesus' character in this. When they can't deny the evidence, they turn and they assault his character on this. When they continue that in verses 28 and 29, and they reviled him, that's the blind man who sees now, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. They start tearing Jesus down. They start saying, Moses is greater than this Jesus. We follow Moses. We don't know who this guy is you're following who claims that you claim healed you. We don't know anything about him. We don't even know what city he's from. We know nothing about him. We're following the true path. We'll see in a minute the man gives an amazing response on that. But when the man basically refutes their, their lack of logic here and shows their blindness for what it is, they now turn their reviling against him. Look at verse 34. They answer him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? I hope you can hear the anger in their voice there. And they cast him out. They're continuing the false idea here that if you, if you have any affliction, it's because you've sinned on that. So basically what they're saying, they're saying, listen, you were born blind. We weren't. We're holy. You're not. I mean, this is the epitome of pride. They are saying, you were blind because you or your parents are evil. And look, we're not blind because we are so righteous, so holy, so good. I hope that makes you feel nauseated when you hear what they're saying on this. They go on there and they go on to say, you would teach us? I mean, do you hear what they're saying? They're saying, we are learned. We are the Pharisees. We spend our whole life studying. You're a blind beggar who's never even had one day of school in life. How dare you try to tell us anything about life? Friends, this is the epitome of 
of self-confidence, an ugly, ugly human pride here. And they do what they say. They refuse to listen to him, and they cast him out. They kick him out from the synagogue. Unless we miss what's really going on in their heart, Jesus explains it to the man in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Those who don't believe, who here are so prideful in their self-confidence, Jesus is saying, they're under judgment. And this is what's so ironic in this text. The people who think they see spiritually, the people who have the religious heritage and this religious tradition, spent their whole life studying what we would have today as the Old Testament of the Word of God. They spent their whole life claiming to be followers of God of the highest pedigree in this religious tradition. These people who think they are so holy and so righteous and have all of life figured out are the ones who are really blind and under judgment. And yet the one who is physically blind now is, spiritually, is physically seeing, but more than that is spiritually seeing because he, can, he understands his guilt and his need for Jesus. Well, it's not just a negative part of the account. That's not the main part of it. There's a positive side to this account as well, and that's the blind beggar who receives physical and spiritual sight. And I want you to contrast as you think through what we just walked through with this awful self-confidence of the Pharisees. Now look at this beautiful humility in Christ, this confidence in Jesus, this humble confidence in Jesus you see in the man who was healed here. So let's start back in verse 10 and 11 as we look at his story through this text. So verse, in chapter 9, verse 10, So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now, friends, even in these first two verses, there's two indications here of a humble type of confidence in God that we see in this, this man's life. Number one, he first gives credit where credit is due. You know, he's never seen his whole life. He now sees. When they say, how did it happen? He was, did he say, well, you know, I prayed and prayed and I prayed so hard, God finally answered my prayers, and because I did all this, God did it. No, it doesn't take any credit for himself. He doesn't say, well, I must have been a good person and God looked upon me. No, he goes, Jesus did. He doesn't take any credit for himself. He gives credit where credit is due. But second of all, we see his humble confidence in Jesus. He obeys. I mean, think about this from a human standpoint. You've been sitting by a gate blind your whole life as a beggar. And a man, you can't see his face. You hear a voice come to you. And the voice simply says, get up. And then all of a sudden there's mud in your face. Go wash. He doesn't say, okay, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm God. I'm here standing before you now. I know you can't see me, but if you do all this... It'll happen. He doesn't do that. The guy doesn't even hear Jesus address him. He doesn't do anything. He hears Jesus spitting, gets mud from his face, and Jesus says, go wash. And what does he do? He obeys. I mean, let's put ourselves in his shoes. If you were a blind beggar your whole life, and people have probably mocked you and even spit on you in disgust because they saw you as an outcast of society who had sinned, and a man spits in mud and sticks on your face and says, go wash, you're going to be prone to get up and obey some voice you've never heard before? But yet he obeys in this. We see a humble confidence in this voice that is speaking to him, and he obeys Jesus on this. We see his confidence in other ways. Look at verse 17 of our text of John 9. In verse 17, so again they said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Well, this is not some generic reference he's trying to get out of any problems here. He's giving Jesus the highest place of honor as he can think. So he sat by uneducated, untrained, sitting by a gate, probably begging his whole life, and he listens to conversation 
He knows that prophets were held in high honor. He gives to Jesus the highest honor at this point in his faith journey he can think of. This man is a prophet. He is not exalting self like, look, I'm the guy who got healed. He's saying, the guy who healed me, he's the prophet. He's the one to look to. See it again in verse 27. Verse 27, he answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Don't miss this. He is taking a massive risk. He is standing up for Jesus before skeptics here. Notice that word also. Do you also want to be his disciples? What's he claiming? I'm following this guy. Do you want to follow also? And realize what's at stake with this. Back up in verse 22, the parents were afraid to speak up because they knew that the Jews had agreed that if anyone would confess Jesus to be the Christ, they'd be put out of the synagogue. If his parents know this, I can only imagine they probably have warned him about this. Here's his chance to kind of, I don't know anything that happened. I'm I'm done with this. Please just let me go home. I want to enjoy life seeing now. But he claims to be a disciple of Christ in the midst of knowing the cost, in the midst of a hostile crowd. There's no one back. You know, he doesn't have a friend circle standing behind him being like, come on, you can stand up for him. You got it. We got your back. He is alone before a council that hates him and hates Jesus. He says, I'm his disciple. Do you want to follow him also? But he gets even bolder on this because as they continue to assault him, angry out of their pride, he realizes that God's character is being defamed here. And this man who has just had eyesight less than 24 hours probably speaks up to defend the glory and the character of God. This uneducated blind beggar who has seen less than one day now, listen to what he says, verse 30. Again, this sounds like what a learned man would say. This is from a blind beggar. And look at what faith does for him. Verse 30, the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's pretty good for a guy who's never been educated, who hasn't even seen, could never read a book, could never go to a place of learning, who sat probably by a gate all of his life. That's a pretty good insight, isn't it? It's amazing when you have a humble confidence in God, how God opens your mind to the truth of who he is. And we see in this this confidence in Jesus to where he's boldly able to proclaim God's character to skeptics who don't want to hear. He agrees with me. He says, yeah, God doesn't listen to sinners, but listen to what God listens to. God listens to worshipers. God listens to people who are trying to obey. Friends, he gets faith better than most in the American church probably get faith. God listens to people who worship him and who seek to obey his will. He understands what we've been going through all in John so far. That belief is not just some intellectual thing. It is a heart to worship and a heart to obey our creator in all this. He gets belief. And then he confesses again in this who Jesus is. That he is from God. And that gets him kicked out of the synagogue because of it. But look at his confidence one more time, his humble confidence from Jesus. Verse 35. This is is beautiful where Jesus reveals himself to him. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. When Jesus reveals himself, there's no wavering here. There's not, well, let me think about it. This is a big life change. I need to have a worldview shift. I want to argue with you about who. No. He goes, Jesus simply says, I am the son of man. And he goes, I believe. And it says he worshiped, which 
by the way, is a little side note here, a little fun fact on this one. It's the only place in the book of John that said that someone worships Jesus. The only place in this whole book that someone worships, is said to have worshipped Jesus is this man who has just been given physical sight and spiritual sight. So we see here in him a man who's confident, not in self, but a man who's confident in Jesus. We see in the way he obeys when it doesn't make sense from a human standpoint. We see in the way he confesses who Jesus is, even when all around him would mock him for that when it's costly. We see him defending the honor and the glory and the character of God before those who don't believe. And we see him ultimately worship because he realizes Jesus is better than anything else. Now, this is where we don't see him in the rest of the book of John, which kind of makes me upset with John for not telling us anymore. I wonder what happens to the guy after this. Like, I, I wish I knew. I mean, this faith, I would love to see what the Lord did with him, but that's not for us to find out now. When we get to heaven, we can ask that question, right? But the point for us in this text is not what happens to the man in the long run. The point of this text for us is this contrast. Jesus healed on a Sabbath to show us this massive contrast between those who believe and those who don't believe. So it's this contrast between a pride, a self-confidence in oneself, and a humble confidence in who Jesus is and what he's called us to do. And so with all that in view, I want to go back to our question from the beginning. Are we confident in ourselves? or are we confident in Jesus? Which one is it for us? Are we confident in Jesus or are we confident in ourselves? Well, how do we know? How do we know? There's a lot of things we could say to think through that, but I want to give you some things so you can think on it this week, and I can think on it this week, because my hope is not that we look at this text and go, well, that was a nice historical account. I'm glad the blind guy got sight and he believed, and it was awful Pharisees. Shame on them. Yeah, that's not the point. The point of the Gospel of John is written so that you and I, that we might believe as well. The Gospel of John demands a response from us. So here's some things to think about as we look at the obedience, or as we look at the belief in the humble confidence of this, this beggar. How do we know if we have a humble confidence? Ultimately, we have to ask the Lord to show us and let him search our heart. We can't see each other's heart, only he can. But there's some questions we can ask. First of all, do we obey? Simple as that, do, do we obey? These prideful religious leaders had no interest in, in following Jesus. And yet you see this, this man who Jesus spits in mud and puts it on his face and says, Go wash, and he obeys. We see him obeying Jesus at every point in this, confessing Jesus before others. He obeys. Friends, do we obey? Is there a heart desire in us that we want to follow Jesus, even if it's not cool, even if it's not trendy, even if it goes against all the, what our crowd and the friends around us think? Are we willing to obey him because we trust him for who he is? I think a second thing we can ask, do we have a prideful self-confidence or a humble self-confidence? Or, sorry, a humble, not humble self-confidence, humble confidence in the Lord, you know what I mean there, right? So the second thing for us to ask is, do we speak out for Jesus? Do we speak out for Jesus? When we're surrounded and God's put us where we are for a reason. If you're in the school you're at, if you're at the job you're at, if you're in the neighborhood you're at, if you shop at a particular grocery store, the reason you, you do that is because God has put you there. 2 Corinthians 5 is so clear that we are to be his ambassadors as he makes his appeal through us, just like he did with the man here. So friends, do we speak out for Jesus? Do we confess to be followers of Jesus even when we know those around us don't think it's cool to do so? If we even ask our friends at school and in our neighborhoods and our job place, would, our friend, would your friends even know that you're a follower of Jesus? Would my friends know that I'm a follower of Jesus? Do we speak of him like this man here spoke of him? And then when we hear God's name being dishonored, do we speak up in love like this man did? Or do we sit by passively listening to people defaming the character and nature of God and sit by not saying anything? But the last thing I want to mention as far as how do we know if our heart is, the heart motivations are a humble confidence in the gospel or self-confidence is this question. It's a sobering one for us. How do we pray? How do we pray, friends? 
I think that prayer is one of the best indicators of whether or not we're trusting in ourselves or we're trusting in Jesus. Think about this. There's a quote that I heard years ago that stuck with me and it still challenges me. It said this, prayer is an unbroken confession of our utter dependence upon God. Prayerlessness is an unspoken testimony of my utter dependence upon my own self. Prayer is an unbroken confession of my utter dependence upon God. Prayerlessness is an unspoken testimony of my utter dependence upon my own self. So friends, if we want to have a tangible way to look at and ask the Spirit of God to search our hearts, and am I being confident in myself or confident in Jesus? In one place we start is, do we even pray about it? And are we praying at all? What does our prayer life indicate? When times are good, how are we praying? When times are tough, how are we praying? When we're facing big decisions or small decisions, how are we praying? If we're trying to help others and people ask us for our counsel or people just ask us to help in some practical way, do we, do we pray about it or do we decide to do things in our own strength? When we're at church, when we're at home, when we're driving, how do we pray? Friends, I'm convinced as I look at this text that if we are not praying about these things, if I'm not praying about these things, if you're not praying about these things, it's because ultimately we have a lot of self-confidence. We live in a culture that promotes self-confidence. You can do it. You don't need others. You can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You know, we live in a culture that, that elevates doing it on your own. And it can get into the church and get into our own hearts as well. But friends, if we get to a place where in everything we're doing, we're praying without ceasing, that's usually a pretty good indication that we realize we need Jesus and I can't do things in my own strength. I need him and so I'm crying out to him for help. So friends, are we obeying? Are we speaking for Jesus? And how are we praying? I just encourage you this week as I encourage myself this week to think about those things and ask God, the Spirit of God, to show me, am I confident in self or am I confident in Jesus? And friends, if we see a gap, you've heard me say many times before, we know who we're supposed to be in Jesus, but we all fall short. None of us are perfect. There's a gap in all of our lives. The question is, what do we do with that gap? Some of us despair and just give up and throw up our hands. I can't do it. But some of us, this is where I tend to fall, I try to fix it myself. I need to go buy another book. My, my, my bookshelves are full of books I bought out of one of these gap moments in life. If I just buy the next book, go to the next conference, I can fix it. Well, no, that's self-confidence. Friends, if you see gaps to where you're too self-confident and not confident in Jesus enough, my plea to you and my plea to myself in this is let's not become more self-confident trying to fix our self-confidence, okay? We can't fix this ourselves. This is God's grace, God's sanctification, God changing us as we put ourselves in the pathway of His grace, as we put ourselves into Christian community and let the Word of God and the Spirit of God shape us and change us. And so as you think about obedience in your life, as you think about what belief looks like, as you think about whether or not you're being bold, speaking up for Jesus, if you see gaps where you're short, don't fall into the extreme of giving up and don't fall in the extreme of being more self-confident, trying to fix it yourself. Cry out to Jesus to change you. Get brothers and sisters to come alongside you and then immerse yourself in the word of God and say, God, I need transformation here. Would you please transform me? And my prayer is that as I do this and we as a gateway family do this, God, by his kindness to us, will kill all the self-confidence in our hearts and let us be confident in one thing only, and that's in him and his power to work. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for the gospel of John, and we're thankful in your kindness to us that you show us what it means to follow you. Lord, it's so easy for any of us to get confident in ourselves. But Lord Jesus, you are so, so very clear. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Father, would you forgive us for looking at that verse and that truth and acting like, apart from you, we can do things not as well or not as much? Because it's not what you tell us. It tells us, apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, would you, through the work of your Holy Spirit, applying the word of God into our lives, would you, in my heart and the heart of all of us in the Gateway family, 
would you, in your kindness to us, be killing all of our self-confidence? Father, we don't want to be people who rely on self and depend on self. We want to be people who have a humble confidence in you. A confidence that, God, that you are God and that you love us and you want to work through us to make yourself known. So, Lord, this week, would you help us remind us every day how much we need you. Would you remind us so that we might pray and seek your face in every decision and every moment, that we would be a people who pray without ceasing. God, would you remind us of these things that we might obey. Lord Jesus, you're so clear that if we love you, we will obey your commands. So we ask for grace this week to not try our own strength, but to rely on you and your strength, that we might obey and live a life pleasing to you, acceptable to you this week. Lord, I pray this week that as well, you would let us be bold to speak for you. God, we are here for such a time as this. It's not an accident that our lives are here at this time, in this year, in this city. You've placed us here. You've reconciled us to yourself. And according to 2 Corinthians, you've made us ministers of reconciliation. God, I pray this week that every single one of us in the Gateway family would have an opportunity to be a minister of reconciliation. God, would you help us when we hear people talking about you to speak up and point people to how great you are, just like this blind, uneducated beggar did when he heard the religious establishment really belittling you, that he would speak up for you. God, would you give us opportunities, whether it's in a checkout line in the grocery store, whether it's at a gas station, whether it's with friends at school, in the hallways, whether it's with someone at the gym, whether it's someone we just meet in passing, or our neighbor, or perhaps even someone in our own family. God, would you give us grace this week to be a people who are not confident in ourselves, who just go up to someone bold because we're self-confident, but a people, God, who are humble before you and want to see you glorified and are trusting your strength to be your mouthpiece this week. God, I pray you transform this city. You might use us to do it as you see fit so that you receive all the glory. Like we sang earlier, God, our prayer in all of this is that you would be glorified, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing?